Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, it's time for another round of a game I like to call Stump the Whiz. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that you didn't completely rip off car talk there and that I don't have to be a chump, but I'm I'm not exactly looking forward to this because there are uh, a number of instances where we have recordings of you asking me questions that you had not told me to be ready to answer. Um, so I reluctantly will participate here. All right. Well, full disclosure, I I did kind of let you know about this one. But I was just curious to hear what, if anything, you know about a little town called South Lake, Texas. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I watched a long video uh, about it. And I read like too many articles because I kept finding like new controversies. You said one of the things we're going to talk about is South Lake, Texas. And so I Googled South Lake, Texas and saw like, oh, okay, here's the controversy. But then in that story, it referenced a previous controversy. And then there was the video and I watched the video and that led. So uh, I, I don't know. I know a lot. Like I know that the median home value is over a million dollars. I think I know that. I think I remember that from uh, the video that I watched. I know that it's got a a school district name that is not Southlake. I I think it's Carroll ISD. Um, I know that... Do you know what uh, their mascot is? Oh, gosh. I I do because a parent was referring to to the young people as... Bulldogs or whatever. Uh, what, oh, what, you have what? just lost so much credibility in North oh, Texas. Right. What? They're it's the, the dragons. The, dra- the dragons. I knew that because they kept saying, you know, we dragons. These these young dragons. Well, in this episode, we're going to be hearing from a group of folks that I don't think we've heard enough of either in South Lake or, frankly, anywhere else. We're going to be hearing from students, both current and former. Yeah, that's great, and uh, it's increasingly something that. I think you and I are both talking about as the culture war continues to come into our schools uh, and we find adults screaming at other adults, uh, all claiming to be acting on behalf of young people. Uh, I think it's so important to hear from them. Well, my job, as always, was to do the heavy lifting of interviewing, which is fine. I love that role. (laughs) But this does not mean that you are off the hook, Jack. I'm never off the hook, Jennifer. There is always a hook that you've strung me on. Yes, uh, I'm I'm ready to talk about controversies and backlashes. And I'm also ready to play a somewhat surprising role and be the ray of sunshine. Okay, so thanks to Jack, you know a bit about South Lake. Here's some more info. South Lake is an affluent, mostly white suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. And during the last few years, the community and its schools, that would be the Carroll Independent School District, or ISD, as they say in Texas, have had one incident after another involving racism. And so a group of students, both current and former, banded together and decided to try to do something about it. They collected stories from students about what it's like to be on the receiving end 
kind of a culture where casual racism is tolerated, and they pushed officials to take action. That group, by the way, became known as the South Lake Anti-Racism Coalition, or SARC, and they were really effective. In response to their organizing and advocacy, district leaders came up with a plan to make schools more responsive to a student body that's getting more diverse. The plan included anti-bullying programs, some diversity training for teachers and staff. It wasn't everything the students have been pushing for, but it was a start. And then, well, let's just say that there was some backlash. You've probably heard about it. Over the past few months, Southlake has emerged as the epicenter of the heated battle over what gets taught in schools. But amidst all the yelling, the voices of those students who pushed for change in the first place have kind of gotten lost. So I invited a few of them to join us on Have You Heard? First up is current senior Reina Tavari. My question for her was a straightforward one. What is it like to be a student in Southlake right now? It's just very strange. Like there's a lot of tension, but at the same time, I don't really see it much in the students. It's more in the parents, like the parents of the people I'm friends with even. It's kind of a strange environment, kind of tense. And like when you sit in front of a person with a Blue Lives Matter flag right on their computer, I'm like, whoa, hey, man. Raina says that the sort of shouting school board showdowns that make the news are pretty much confined to adults. In fact, she says most students seem eager to get as far away from the politics as possible. I'd be able to have a civil conversation with a student rather than a parent, which is like a recurring theme. But at the same time, it's more like students are just trying to avoid the topic at all, regardless of what side they're on, if they're heavily opinionated, if they're not. For the most part, people just want to stay out of that. They don't want to talk about it because it's not an issue affecting them. And so, and they don't see what's going on. But I sympathize with all the people who aren't saying anything because their parents have different views or it's just kind of an uncomfortable topic. I'm not really justifying anyone's actions, but I can see where they're coming from. Hi, I'm Alia. I am a part of the South Lake Anti-Racism Coalition, and I'm a current senior in high school. I joined SARC just this summer because I saw that there was so much happening in South Lake, and I had been following SARC for like the past year or so, and I was super interested in what they were doing. Um, I feel like this year things have gotten so out of control that I was like, I have to be a part of this. And I have to be a part of the change happening in Southlake. I think the environment at school is definitely very tense because there's so much polarization of like the ideologies. So people don't really want to talk about things that much in school, but you can definitely feel it like under the surface. Like the rest of the world these days, South Lake schools are politically divided. And that divide precedes the current fury over the district diversity plan. Mars, who graduated in 2020, recalls politics just sort of exploding in the schools after the election of Donald Trump. Mars, by the way, is not her real name, but I think you will agree it is a very cool choice for a pseudonym. Sitting through like 2015, 2016, seeing like a literal fight break out in the um, in the cafeteria over the election. And then eventually like like all conversations just being shut down because of fear of like any sort of backlash, especially with the hyper conservative environment of the school and like the very don't talk about anything that happens sort of environment in the school. 
So if anyone like had a mental health crisis, there were four students who passed away during my time at school. One of them was a really close friend of mine. And when that happened, even that was like completely shut down. It's very strange to see a school district that is so allergic to the concept of like human emotion and like actual life and just so obsessed with this idea of excellence and striving for greatness rather than just caring about the students as we are in the world. And I think that that also kind of plays into this idea of trying to ignore racism, trying to ignore homophobia and like the bizarre sexism that is endemic in so many high schools. Over the last six months, South Lake has attracted a media frenzy. After conservative candidates swept local elections last May, the Wall Street Journal ran an op-ed entitled South Lake Says No to Woke Education. NBC even created an entire podcast simply called South Lake. It's excellent, by the way, and the students of Sark figure prominently in it. Rena says that she'd hoped all this media exposure would get more of her fellow students focused on why there's so much attention on South Lake in its schools. But that hasn't happened. Take this recent exchange she had with another student about the NBC podcast. She was like, yeah, we were on like NBC. People need to calm down. I was like, what do, what do you mean? Like, it's pretty necessary that we're on NBC. There's so much happening. And it's weird that you would just let yourself like you'd be you wouldn't at least be intrigued like well you don't ask yourself yourself why are we on NBC why is this a problem you know because it's hard for people to actually believe it you know ignorance is bliss and that's what they've been taught to learn that's what their parents have been taught to learn but especially with my generation we have like more access to the internet and stuff so even earlier on, we're able to form our own opinions. So with all that media access and with while you're still developing yourself, your identity, I mean, high schoolers are growing so much at this time. It's very strange to me. And whenever I talk to, I mean, obviously my friends share very similar ideals, but when I talk to someone who would maybe see things differently, there's a surprising like calmness like I don't don't listen to my parents I'm different I mean I have their same opinions but I'm not crazy like that you know what I mean but all this media attention has also forced the students and alumni of Sark to wrestle with their own complicated role in this larger story. Anya Kushwaha is a Carol ISD alum and a co-founder of Sark. She graduated in 2016. And she says that one criticism that the members of the group hear regularly is that by being so loud in their support of the District Diversity Plan, or CCAP, that they help spur the backlash that it's now consuming South Lake schools. I remember just when things first started blowing up, even when the whole fight broke out about the CCAP and they started to sue the school district and the temporary restraining order went in place, there were a lot of people that were criticizing us and they were like, if y'all hadn't made a big deal about the CCAP, it would have passed silently. Like no one would have known. It wasn't that controversial before that. And we were like, did we literally hurt this movement by like being so vocal that it brought the wrong attention to this? What Anya and the other activists are confronting these days is that for all of the success of their activism in calling attention to discrimination in South Lake schools, conditions in those schools have actually gotten worse. If anything, it's become worse. I know here talking to other students and teachers 
that it's literally something you can't talk about. Like it's something that's just so viscerally shut down, even when the topic is broached in the classroom. One student was talking about their experience as a black student and the teacher was like, nope, you can't talk. We can't talk about that. You're going to get me in trouble. And like, like it's literally silencing us. Whereas when I was in the district, it was starting to get like very, very, I guess, overtly contentious in 2015, 2016 with the election. But we at least had conversations. We had conversations that people were like, it was very lopsided, like it was me versus an entire classroom. But at least the conversations were allowed to take place. It wasn't like overtly silenced and snubbed altogether. But now I think that the censorship has become really, really stark. So, Jack, listening to the students talk about and frankly wrestle with this idea of whether their activism has in some way played a role in kind of bringing this, you know, terrible situation down upon everyone. Well, first of all, it just hurt my heart to hear that. Mm -hmm. But it also reminded me of a conversation I had a while back with Noliwe Rooks. I was asking her if she could think of any historical parallels. And she talked about the push by students of color during the 60s for things like ethnic studies on college campuses and more diversity. And her takeaway was, you know, they made games and then the backlash that that prompted lasted, you know, was much more severe than what they actually won. And so I guess for this episode's trip in the time machine, I want you to tell us if there are other historical parallels. And I'm predicting that this is going to be kind of a gloomy trip in the time machine. Yeah, I can think of a few more cases, and I'm not sure that they're particularly gloomy, although there definitely is a common theme of backlash here. Uh, one of them, and I reached out to uh, a colleague, Adam Latz, who is uh, an expert in conservatism in education, and particularly religious conservatism, and said, you know, it seems to me like there was a big backlash against the teaching of evolution, uh, and that there's some kind of parallel here. And he agreed, and uh, he outlined the ways in which the culture war was really brought into the schools in an effective way, again, in a manner that we've talked about on this show, where uh, the symbolic innocence of children uh, was used as a mechanism for making a broader cultural push for religion in our society. Um, that the so-called debate between the teaching of evolution and the teaching of creationism uh, was really about something bigger uh, and about something that was much less about schools and pedagogy than it was about declining religiosity in our society. That's so interesting to hear, Jack, because I've been working on this project about the big push for parental rights in the 90s. And what's what's kind of fascinating to see is just how long the list of things was that that parents objected to. And but ultimately the common denominator was this sense that we were undergoing a time of of cultural change and religiosity was on the decline. And so as a result, parents were upset about all sorts of things that were kind of a stand-in for that. So things like 
conflict resolution and and team management. Um, anything involving cemeteries. I I personally have never heard of an assignment where students write their own the you know epitaphs for their grave, their headstone, um, and anything involving like diary entries where students would reflect. And you felt this real like a palpable sense of fear that that if you know if the schools were left to their own devices that kids were going to slip the grasp of their parents and this religious emphasis right and i think it's important to think about the two different ways that we use the word conservative one is a reference to somebody's politics and we're talking largely uh, about the republican party here if we're thinking about modern us politics and the other use of the word refers to a desire to not change the present order. And we can see that this is the case both with regard to changes in religion and religiosity, as well as a second example that I can think of, uh, which has to do with changes in uh, social life in our society. And specifically, I'm thinking about the push for racially integrated schools. That was, as most listeners will know, uh, certainly an effort with roots uh, far deeper than the mid-20th century, but obviously 1954, we get the Brown decision. A year later, we get the court ruling again, uh, mandating, quote-unquote, all deliberate speed in the integration of America's public schools. And then there was uh, a huge backlash, not just in the South, where we saw the creation of so-called segregation academies, with people pulling their kids out of the now integrating public schools and sending them to private schools where they could control admission and maintain all white student bodies, but also as well as the North and West where we saw massive white flight as a response. So some of my early work looked at how that was true in Los Angeles, that people essentially fled L.A., at the mere threat of racially integrated schools and moved to places like Orange County where there were fewer students of color, although that obviously has changed a lot in recent years. Okay, back to South Lake. Stephanie Drenka is Sark's oldest member. She graduated in 2004, and her mom was a librarian in the school district for many years. Stephanie is Korean-American and says she regularly experienced racism as a student. One of her big frustrations with the current media frenzy around South Lake and its schools is that it's too narrowly focused on what's happening right now, like the outrage when a school district official was caught on tape telling teachers that if they assigned a book about the Holocaust, they'd need to also come up with something taking the quote-unquote other side. But as Stephanie points out, there's a history here that too often gets left out. One of the troubling things about the recent media, I think, is how short-term people's memory is around the long-standing history of racism in South Lake. A lot of people, the, the recent release of the audio tape and the Holocaust was their first entry point into the South Lake story. And people are forgetting the reason that the CCAP was even needed the videos that surfaced on social media in 2017, 2018. And people from that era forget that this happened in 1996 when football players had a sign that said, Tano, tear an N-word's head off. South Lake is at war over how to teach history. But Stephanie is convinced that the real problem here is that the community has never really grappled with its own history. 
what's right, ironic is we're at this crossroads of people saying racism doesn't exist because they weren't taught the history of their own city, their own town that has was on stolen land that is on land that was stolen from a black formerly enslaved man to build a lake. All of these things that they don't want to learn because they would have to acknowledge that they've benefited from that injustice. And they don't want their children and their young people to feel guilty about this. Um, and it's really coming at a cost to their knowledge and their awareness of what's happening in the world in South Lake and in our country. Then there's the fact that the South Lake saga is playing out in Texas. Mars, who graduated from Carroll ISD last year, has been thinking a lot about her home state as its politics makes a sharp right turn. Watching everything go down at the start of the pandemic and understanding that like Texas had started off at kind of like a weird political point where there's a lot of conservative power that is managing how we view the world and how we interact with each other on like a day-to-day basis. And that power doesn't necessarily reflect the people on the ground who tend to be apolitical for fear of doing or saying the wrong thing or just having a lot of comfort and safety in the status quo, even if that status quo comes at the direct cost of queer students and the students of color and people of color and queer people in general. These days, Mars attends college far from Texas, but that distance has given her a new perspective on her home state and its mythology, and how a very particular story of Texas and what it represents is being used not just to block change, but to demonize the people who are pushing for change. This is the Texan way of life. We are Texans, we are proud, we are conservative, we are religious, we are Christian. That myth of Texas is being weaponized at like the direct cost of people who are trying to make a difference for the better. People who are doing like amazing work in um, Dallas and Fort Worth are being treated as like pariahs and outsiders because they have the decency to stand up for the most vulnerable members of their community. We on at SARC have been legitimately called like threats to American society just by pointing out that racism has happened. We've been accused on multiple occasions of manufacturing testimonies, despite the fact that these have been volunteered by people who are in no doubt like coming from a very vulnerable place. And it's it's kind of appalling that the idea of the tradition being so important that you have to treat any sort of questions to that tradition as a lie or an attack on you, it just creates like this immediate defensiveness. And that's like, I think the biggest roadblock to change and the language that's being used by conservatives to frame everything as an attack is creating that like war mentality, that this is a conflict rather than a opportunity for us to converse and move forward. Even if this is the first you're hearing about South Lake, I'm betting that it feels familiar. That's because what's happening in North Texas is essentially the same story that's playing out in communities across the country. It's also the same political dynamic in which the loudest voices seem to be winning, regardless of whether they're in the right or the majority. For Anya, that's been a rude awakening. What they're seeing at these school boards, no matter how loud or logical 
the quote unquote left's arguments are when they're contesting all of these anti-CRT advocates. At the end of the day, school boards and administrations and institutions are more fearful of the right because they are the ones going through more drastic measures. They're the ones who are literally incarcerating school board members for defending diversity like we've seen in our hometown. They're the ones who are actually like threatening violence and bringing like such scary energy to be around. Like going to those board meetings in person was genuinely like fearful. It was such a horrifying experience that I never wanted to experience again. But they're so much better at that to where the school boards have no choice but to capitulate to what they're demanding um, and what they're threatening, especially in terms of legal suits and all of the resources that they can afford to threaten. Whereas we unfortunately don't always have that much power tangibly that we can wield against them in the same way. So Jack, when you gave us a kind of overview of some of the backlash politics that has really shaped public education in the 20th century, frankly, it was a it was a bit of a downer. You told us that it might not be, but it was. And so <laughs> I'm my real hope is that somehow you're going to be able to draw upon your vast knowledge of education history and find something, anything <laughs> that we can take away to feel a little bit better about the state of the world. Yeah, I don't think it's actually that hard. I mentioned earlier that I had reached out to Adam Latz, and he and I had a back and forth exchange about this where I actually ended up feeling a lot more positive about the direction things are headed. So I gave a couple examples of backlash earlier, one of them having to do with the teaching of evolution, the other having to do with racially integrating the schools. And we can see that even though uh, there still is um, some controversy in some places around the teaching of evolution, mostly it's totally accepted, right? That many Americans are creationists and would identify that way, but don't reject the teaching of science. Uh, and so even though many Americans maintain religious worldviews, we aren't fighting over the teaching of evolution in the schools. That really has become a settled debate. It's not quite as sunny with regard to the question of racially integrating the schools. So scholars like Gary Orfield have shown us that our schools are actually more segregated now than they were several decades ago. But it's also important to note the progress there, right? That very few Americans would outwardly say today, I am choosing this school because it is all white, right? That that's the thing that is most important to me. A tiny minority of parents might be thinking about that as a part of choosing a school. Again, you know, I don't want to be naive here and say that white parents across the U.S. are actively seeking out racially diverse schools, but it's also important to recognize that, you know, there has been some genuine progress there with regard to thinking about whiteness in schools and the degree to which that needs to be preserved in its entirety. And then I'll just add one more example here. I gave you two examples of backlash earlier, but listening to the episode, I was thinking of a third one, and it's the teaching of progressivism. Uh, so that was a major controversy in the early 20th century. Uh, Adam Latz was sending me some examples of parents uh, who were absolutely freaking out about progressivism, that this idea of a quote-unquote child-centered education was going to completely undermine traditional authority and morality. And 
here we are today. You know, yes, scholars like Larry Cuban would tell us that we talk more about child-centeredness than we do child-centeredness in school. But progressive pedagogy, which was once totally reviled by curricular traditionalists, is very much alive and well in our schools, and particularly in the early grades, right? Go to any kindergarten or first grade or, you know, many second grades, although you're starting to get up to third grade, which is the first year of standardized testing, and you'll see kids exploring you know, playing with manipulatives on the floor, uh, you know, learning by doing. You'll see teachers who are trying to structure activities for young people that will engage their interests. Right? All of this is the sort of stuff that pedagogical progressives were talking about in the early 20th century, and that backlash is completely gone. Um, so that, in that sense, that may be the most positive of these cases. Well, I'm kind of surprised, Jack. I actually do feel a little bit better. But I think the big question is, you know, over like what period of time, how long did it take before the, you actually see the backlash start to lose steam? Why are you insistent on bringing the rain clouds back in here, right? Like, like some sort of witch doctor, you're summoning uh, the storm. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's not a totally positive story, right? We are talking about slow change over time, and we are talking about a long period of disagreement, to put it very mildly, uh, and you know, shrill screaming and fighting uh, to be, you know, probably a little bit more accurate in the description. Um, but you know, I think it it is encouraging if we recognize that this is actually a part of the deal in a democracy, um, that the way around this is essentially to deny people their right to express themselves and hold contrary opinions. And, you know, uh, if, if that's the choice, if the choice is to have less democracy in order to have more agreement or to suffer through this stuff knowing that it's a part of the price of having this kind of system, which ultimately benefits all of us more than the alternative, and that this stuff does blow over, and so we don't need to think so apocalyptically about it, then I think that long view can be really useful. Back to South Lake. So I will admit that I approached my conversation with the Sark activists with a bit of a heavy heart. And yet the students and alumni I had the privilege of talking to really didn't seem to share my bleak view of the state of the world, in part because they see the attitudes of their peers starting to change. Reina, the current senior we heard from earlier, says she feels hopeful in part because more students seem to be waking up. To see all this stuff like this picture of Texas of people fighting so hard for oppression, it's really disheartening. You know, as a person of color, as as part of a, the LGBTQ community, it's it's weird. It's foreign. It's like, why would you want to do that? But at the same time, there are in like slowly more and more people like just little by little, more and more people are fighting for equality, fighting for the vulnerable members of our society. And so it's kind of like a double-edged sword, like like more people are being aware, but it's also because it's become put in the spotlight, you hear so many more negative. So it's a weird environment. So it's disheartening, but at the same time, like kind of hopeful, I guess. Anya, the co-founder of Sark, 
finds hope in the fact that South Lake keeps sending students like her out into the world, who then bring what they've seen and learned back to their hometown. I had actually just graduated from college upon starting SARC with my fellow 2016 alumni, um, Nishita Pandagula, and we had similar experiences. We both left South Lake and wanted to go to as diverse a place as possible. I went to the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, also primarily because it was a very diverse campus and was actually one of the first colleges that had a non-white majority. <laughs> and I was like, love that. Let's go. And then she ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin. And when we unfortunately had to come back and with the shutdown and the pandemic, we were just kind of thrown back into our extremely homogenous, very, very ultra conservative hometown. And we just saw this literal divide between even the ways that our campuses and our universities handled the murder of George Floyd. And we had statements from our campus administration absolutely detesting police brutality and showing their support for Black students. And we came back to Carol's school board sending out an email to the entire student body and parents telling them that their kids should not go to a Black Lives Matter protest because it's dangerous and they can't promise that they'll stay safe. Stephanie Drenka, the 2004 alum, has a similar story. She left South Lake for the most diverse school she could find, Chicago's DePaul University. That's where she took her very first Asian American Studies class, and she hasn't been the same since. Today, she works for a racial equity nonprofit in Dallas, and she's a passionate advocate for teaching students the kind of history that she never got growing up in South Lake. And so when you think about history and how it's taught in South Lake, it's taught that the Civil War was because of states' rights. Slavery is not, it's not mentioned. It is not the primary source or the cause of the Civil War. We honor our Confederate soldiers in South Lake. They have, you know, reenactments. They have, you know, tributes to them on the South Lake Historical Society website. And so it's not surprising that there is this division. And what is really frustrating is that the history and learning about that is the key to bringing people back together. So the source of my hope for South Lake, for the world, is the same source of fear for them. It's that they are going to be outnumbered soon. That is a realistic fact. And they are going to lose that power. And how do they keep that power and keep that majority? It's by keeping people of color separated. If they keep us divided, if they keep us from learning the truth, then they maintain power. If we are to learn the history of our struggles and our solidarity, we outnumber them. The places that the anti-CRT backlash is happening are also, it also coincides with the changing in population. And so they're really at a point where they know this is their last stand. And so I'm hopeful that they are going to be outnumbered. What's really hard to swallow is how many people are going to be harmed as they hold on to that last ounce of power. A huge thanks to the members of the South Lake Anti-Racism Coalition for sharing their stories. You can follow them on Twitter at SouthLakeARC. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the growing culture war cacophony over schools and what they teach. We'll also be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. It involves the grievance industrial complex, something we learned a thing or two about after we penned a piece for the Washington Post that turned out to be somewhat mm, controversial. 
so, Jack, one of the things I kept coming back to as I listened to those students from Southlake was just how much their voices are being drowned out by the cacophony that we're seeing, and you know, really all over the country. And what's so frustrating is that if you look at places that have really emerged as hotspots, you will see the same dynamic playing out again and again. And that that is that you know, often some group of students, current and former, will have organized and pressed their schools for change, right? Sometimes it's, you know, like what happened in Southlake where they're saying, we have, we feel unsafe. We we need you to, we need you to fix that. We need you to be more responsive. In other places, you see alumni, recent alumni coming back and saying to their schools, you didn't prepare us for the real world, right? I, I went uh, through 12 years of education in the school system, and I never had a teacher of color. You need to fix that. And often you see school districts starting to make the creaky uh, turn towards towards doing that, and then this kind of explosive backlash. And I feel that one really unfortunate consequence of the heat and light of the backlash is that the voices of the students and their very legitimate demands have been really completely drowned out. So much of the backlash is a result of adults claiming to act in the best interest of children. And here I'll reference our recent op-ed in the Washington Post, which inspired its own kind of backlash. And, you know, really interestingly, I didn't hear in my hate mail grab bag uh, a single time from a student. Right? I didn't get a single email from a young person saying, you know what, um, my parents do actually have total control over me and it really is of no concern to me that I be exposed to ideas that would expand my understanding of the world, teach me to think critically, and that might possibly not coincide with what my parents think. Right? Not one young person. Um, whereas lots of adults who actually apparently didn't read the piece, uh, were making the case that they should have absolute control over their kids. And I just find that so interesting here, right? That young people tend to take this more balanced, more open-minded stance. Not all of them, not everywhere. Um, but that's another piece of this that is encouraging to me, right? If we are looking for silver linings in rain clouds, one of them is that, you know, young people seem to have a generally more balanced approach to all of the things that we're fighting about, and particularly around the teaching of race in schools. And again, this isn't every young person and it isn't everywhere, um, but you know, those young people will eventually take up roles in our society as leaders in schools or, you know, elsewhere. And, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, I'm pretty encouraged by the way I hear them talking about what they want education to do for them. I feel like our roles have been completely reversed yeah, in this episode, right. <laughs> that I am just such a Debbie Downer. And Excuse that you're me, that's, just, not, that's, that's not always my role. And that you're just, you're just Professor Uplift. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's actually that's my new alias now that mm-hmm. I have had to like remove myself from the internet for a week. <laughs> well, I thought we could actually talk about our Washington Post piece and the response to it in the weeds because I felt like I got an up close glimpse of what the grievance industrial complex really looks like in a way that I I hadn't seen before. So I'm hoping I can convince you, Jack, to join me in the weeds and possibly uh, lure some new listeners to join us too. We support the show on Patreon.com. All you have to do is go to Patreon.com slash Have You Heard Podcast, and you'll see a list of the various extras you can get just by throwing a couple dollars our way each month. We do a reading list for each episode, and then after each show, we go into the weeds and we hold forth on some topic that's of intense interest usually to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and for those of you who would like a sneak peek into this but aren't ready to throw down the change in order to go beyond the paywall, I actually tweeted out a couple of the emails that I received from people accusing me of being an undercover KGB agent um, or using a slew of very out-of-date um homophobic slurs. Uh, So uh, you can get a taste of what we're going to be talking about in the weeds. And uh, while you're on Twitter, go on and uh, let us know that you listened to the latest episode. Tag the show's handle there at Have You Heard Pod. Make sure that you are a subscriber so that every time a new episode comes out, you get it. Give us a rating if you haven't already. That's one way that helps people find the show. Five stars, obviously, is what we prefer, but this is a democracy, and so we leave that up to you. Um, Although my KGB handlers uh, may be watching you as you do give your rating. Uh, And then, uh, as I've been saying lately, um, make sure to get a Wolf at the Schoolhouse store from your local library. Um, Make it one of the most checked out books in your community. Well, speaking it. of checking out, I think that does it for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such a good transition, Jennifer. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.